Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Alex Barker, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. International superstar Taylor Swift is enjoying seemingly unstoppable success. The Shake It Off singer just took home six trophies at the American Music Awards earlier this week and has an enormous dedicated fan base. But she is furious about the sale of her back catalogue and it's shining a light on the role of big investments in the changing music industry of today. Here with me to discuss are Anna Nicolau, our US media correspondent, and Jamie Powell of Alphaville. Anna, just imagine I'm a 40-something Brit with very little sense of what's been happening in the music industry. Who is Taylor Swift and which record labels has she been with? Taylor Swift is a pop star slash singer-songwriter. This goes back to 2006 when she was a teenager in Nashville. The famous story they tell is this man named Scott Borchetta, who was a label executive, had discovered her in a cafe in Nashville where she was performing, and he wanted to sign her. At that point, he didn't even really have a record label, so they kind of started the label at the same time as they signed her. She was their first artist. It was called Big Machine Records. Then she became much, much bigger and more successful and popular, but she had signed a deal back then, so she was locked in to make six albums with Big Machine Records. And then her contract was finally nearing its end 2017 she released her final album so at that point she had the choice of you know where to go what to do next because she basically had so much power in the industry and she was very successful and sold you know more than 30 million albums and eventually she signed with Republic Records within Universal which is like the most pop label you could possibly be at and that was last year when that happened right so she changed the Universal Music but Big Machine kept the rights to her back catalogue. Is that right? Exactly, yes. Very standard for when you sign with the label. They get the master recordings to music, which means they own the rights to them. And a lot of times in the contracts, they'll have a stipulation where you can re-record those songs maybe five years after they were released. But for the time being, you're locked into that contract. Sure. And how important is that back catalogue to her? It's extremely important. Every time any of those songs are played, you know, in a movie, in a commercial, in the shopping mall, in a restaurant, or they're streamed by people, she would be making money off of that. I mean, that's also one of the reasons why Big Machine, she was making up, you know, a third to even half of their revenues. So it's a very valuable catalog. There was a lot of talk about what was going to happen with it just because it's rare to have a big catalog like that up for sale or up for grabs. She's made a big deal about how this is everything to her is owning her music. And she's pretty upset. I think it's safe to say she's pretty upset. (laughs) Um, She's been saying in interviews that she wants her masters and it's no secret that she's upset about the fact that Big Machine had kept the rights to her masters. What happened next with the catalogue? So shortly after Taylor decided to leave Big Machine... Scott Borchetta started receiving offers for Big Machine, the whole company, including the prized asset, of course, was Taylor's catalog. And after several months, he decided to sell it to Scooter Braun, who is this big music manager. He was famously known for pretty much discovering Justin Bieber. So he basically took on control of her music through that deal. One of the reasons it was contentious is She views Scooter Braun as one of her enemies in this whole drama. 
So she was mad. She felt like Scott Borchetta sold it to Scooter Braun out of spite. And on the royalty side, I'm like, you know, the, the finance economic side of this whole thing is that she claimed that when she was negotiating her exit, she had been in talks with them about getting her master's back. And she'd asked them many, many times. And she says that they never gave her a fair chance to buy them. She says that she was only offered a chance to buy one of the albums in exchange for every new album they would make for her, where she wanted to buy them outright. Big Machine denies this and claimed that they gave her free range to bid on them the same as they would someone else. So that's the part that gets a bit murky because the two sides just completely disagree on what happened and we obviously don't know. So Jamie, what have the Carlisle Group got to do with this? Well, they were one of the investors with Scooter Braun, if I'm understanding that correct, Anna. Yes, they were minority investors. So they just fronted up some capital. And Carlyle Group, for those who don't know, are a giant private equity house. They've got about $212 billion in assets. You know, it's a serious financial institution. So it's a big deal for whoever's managing the investment at Carlyle, but it's not a big deal for Carlyle. But the kind of interesting part is that because of music streaming and how it's changed the visibility on when money pours in from a song being played. It's made songs much more attractive a financial asset than they really were before. If you think about the old days when you go out and buy a CD or you buy something on iTunes, that was a lumpy payment. You know, you buy the album once and you might buy the reissue on the 25th anniversary or the 50th anniversary. Now we're coming around to the Beatles and the Beach Boys 50 anniversaries. So really, you're looking at one lump of cash up front and then collecting royalties from radio and stuff you could sell on the road, merch, etc. But streaming means that there's less money up front, but it can be collected over a much longer time horizon. And one thing we know about investors is they like recurring revenues. It's rent, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's more like a fixed income asset. And especially now we're in a kind of world of extremely low yields everywhere, that if you can buy a song which has a 5%, 6% yield, that's a very attractive asset for anyone to own. And also it's completely uncorrelated, you'd like to think, with other asset classes. So that's the other advantage for investors. It's this new trend in the last four or five years of being able to plan out the cash flows, be like, you know, if Taylor Swift's popular for the next 20 years, which seems like a safe-ish bet, then we can expect to make this much money over this time and the present value of that is worth more than we're going to pay now or what we're paying now. Carlisle at the back end of this wave. Yeah, they're just private finance. equity money. Yeah. Or are they at the early stages of kind of private equity mm, coming into? It's still a new phenomenon. There's a fund in the UK, which is a closed down fund and it's listed called Hypnogesis. They've raised £625 million to invest in songs and they already have bought rights to songs by Timberland, Missy Elliott, Justin Timberlake. And at the moment, they offer a 4.7% yield as well as any capital appreciation. So if the songs get more popular, and that's part of their pitch as well, is that they can squeeze these songs better than the original owners. And they seem to have done pretty well. Like, we're still popular with UK investors. They are making a call on whether these songs are still going to be popular in 20 years' time. I mean, this is the fundamental issue here, is that this is a very new asset class, and you can't make the same assumptions you can with a normal fixed income instrument. There's no covenants rights to assets. It's a very different proposition. And I do think that particularly as we're seeing cycles of trends move slightly faster than they used to, that there might be a few people caught quite flat footed in the long term. If you know anything about the history of music, you'll know that there are very sharp changes in what's popular. 
1979, disco was extremely popular. You know, the Rolling Stones did a disco album, okay? But by 1981, no one was listening to it. There's another element to the longevity of music, which is that big back catalogues, if you think of the Beach Boys, the Beatles, the Stones, these kind of seminal acts which are cross-generational, the main reason they are cross-generational is because as a child you were very limited by what you could listen to. You only had your parents' music. So therefore, you were kind of indoctrinated. It was like picking a religion, right? If your parents listened to the Stones, you became a Stones fan, and you'd always like that music, and you'd probably do the same for your kids to an extent now. Now, children are getting access to streaming services and YouTube much earlier. They're not going to develop the same taste as their parents. So whether these back catalogues have the same sway is the big question. And I think we're beginning to see a sign of this in the number of music biopics that have come out because this is a very good way of introducing old music to new audiences. We've had the Queen one. uh, I mean, we've had a Notorious B.I.G. one. We've had a Tupac one. We've had a N.W.A. one. I think we're kind of seeing a sign that labels are quite aware that convincing today's eight-year-olds that Octopus's Garden is a fun song is going to be a lot harder than it was, say, 20 years ago. I can certainly attest to that on the kids' front. If Swift were to re-record her back catalogue, Anna as she is threatening to do, how would that potentially hit the investments of Carlisle and Scooter Braun? Well, her goal with this is, one, that she wants to take control of it so she could have a fresh copy and say it's being used for various purposes. She could give them the new recording and she makes all the money. So there's a financial incentive for her to do this. And two, it's obviously revenge and she wants to devalue their investment and screw over these men that she hates. There's kind of mixed opinions on how well it could work. I mean, it's tough to recreate songs that she first recorded 15 years ago, right? When she was a teenager singing about literally being 15 years old and now she's about to turn 30. Other people say, you know, she has this massive, very, very loyal fan base that would probably follow her anywhere. It's not unprecedented. People have recorded their music again. Prince was one who had, you know, a huge fight for this and did actually record some of his old stuff. Others have done it just to kind of have a new take on an old hit, but that was all during a physical music era. So you would actually make a new CD and distribute it. Now, however, if she were to recreate these songs, they would presumably be sitting on a streaming app next to the other ones on your phone, which makes it a much more bizarre proposition for a listener. It's pretty unprecedented in terms of the streaming era of music. So it's hard to really say if it would work you would think it would have to impact it somehow, right? If there were, she were diluting the value of the assets that they had bought, there has to be some material cost to them on that. It'll be interesting to see if she actually does it and what it looks like, because again, this has really not been done in this modern version of how we listen to music. Great. Thanks, Anna. I can confirm we're not going to be re-recording this podcast. Thank you to uh, (laughs) you both. And thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget, if you missed our latest episodes on the UK election, bringing the end of austerity, why there's a global pensions crisis and Russia's undaunted voice of dissent, Alexei Navalny. You can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode of FT News in Focus, rate us or leave a comment on your podcast provider. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., 
Corrientes experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.